When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. This week, another in our series of conversations with translators. And with my guest Tim Allen, we move for the first time beyond European languages and about time too. I'm always interested in stories of how translations come about, because chance so often plays a much bigger part than design. So it was with Tim, visiting Asia for the first time 20 years ago as part of his job, knowing no Vietnamese, but hearing from everyone he met about this book, the Song of Q, the national epic, part of the cultural lifeblood. He bought a bilingual edition of the poem from a street vendor, and that was the beginning of his fascination with the language and the text that has just culminated in his translation appearing in Penguin Classics. Along the way were his efforts to grapple with the Vietnamese language and find the right form in contemporary English for this 200-year-old text that was itself a reworking of an older Chinese version. There was also a literary prize for his work in progress, a retreat in a Scottish castle that enabled him to focus on his translation, and, he told me after the interview, a period when the translation looked like it would languish forever in his attic alongside the Christmas decorations, until Penguin editor Henry Elliott got in touch out of the blue. Vietnamese-American poet Ocean Vuong has called Tim's version of the Song of Q an essential book for anyone invested not only in Vietnamese literature, but the historic power of the national epic. Tim Allen's new translation offers clean fluidity while honouring the original's varied rhythms and jagged lyricism, a luminous feat. I'd second that. And in case your initial reaction to the label national epic is rather like mine, well, that sounds rather worthy and dull and not something I'd read for pleasure. Be reassured. The Song of Q is nothing like that. It's fast-paced, almost cinematic in its switches of tempo and tone and focus. It's lyrical and dramatic by turn. Open it almost anywhere, as I've just done, and you'll be drawn in. Here is Q making one of her many escapes. Together they creep down the steps. They leave on horseback, one leading and the other following. The autumn night drags its feet. The wind shudders through the trees. Yellow leaves sink beneath their hooves. The moon sets behind distant mountains. 
Rain drips along the forest path, constant as a water clock. The grass is wet with dew. With every step, she longs for home. At dawn, the cocks are crowing when she hears the shout of an ambush. Suddenly, she is surrounded. Let's start the conversation with Tim's first encounter with Vietnam and the book. My trip to Vietnam was very short, a very kind of brief encounter, but with an extraordinary country. I was really amazed by the, the culture of the people, the, the people themselves, the whole lifestyle there. There were many, many things that kind of appealed to me in terms of the country itself. And then on top of that, to discover this fantastic poem, this fantastic story that... I don't know. I need to be careful how I say this because within Vietnam, literally everyone knows it. And I'd say within the last 30 years or so, a lot of people have made big efforts to make sure that it's well known outside Vietnam. And I suppose what I'm trying to do is to be part of that. But I still think it is the case that many of us outside Vietnam have never come across this. Even if we think of ourselves as being kind of quite cultured people are quite, you know, well-versed in, in world culture or whatever. I think many of us haven't come across this yet, and I think it's a great shame, because I do think it's a, it's a brilliant story. Do you remember what your first impression was when you sat down and began to read for the very first time? Were you immediately drawn into it? I was. I mean, I can remember those very first few pages. I was kind of intrigued by the whole idea of it, but because so many people had spoken of it, you know, and uh, literally everywhere that you went, you know, if you, I'm standing out in a paddy field talking to a rice farmer, and I'd be saying, you know, do you, and do you know Tree and Q? Oh, yeah, you know, and then they'd kind of quote bits of it, and then you're speaking to the Communist Party in Hanoi, and they're quoting it, and then you, you know, you're in the slums of Saigon or whatever, and so, but everybody knew this, so I was intrigued by it in that sense. I'd read a fair bit, I suppose, of Asian literature and I was expecting it, I don't know, maybe to be more kind of stylized and, and more formal than I really found. Once I, when I picked it up and I found straight away it's such an immediately readable story. And then this really interesting kind of ghost appearing in the first kind of uh, three or four pages and you think this is kind of like magic realism and and things so my very first impression of it was wow this is not what I was expecting and this is really exciting and then I think as I went on with it and uh, over the next few years really trying to understand it more and more I found it increasingly very exciting and very surprising all the time it's quite a modern work. It's a surprisingly modern work, is, is how it feels to me. Given that it's such an old story, and it, I mean, it's 200 years old in terms of the main zoo's version, but it goes back a long time before that. So I was really surprised at, at the kind of freshness and modernity of it. So there you were in Vietnam, you'd encountered this text, you'd been drawn into it, you'd been impressed by it but you don't speak any Vietnamese or you've picked up a few words on your travels. So how, how do you get from that position to being able to translate it? Did you come back and then decide to set about learning Vietnamese in a, in a serious way? Um, no, I mean, it, it, it's, it is, this is not what I had planned to do. What, <laughs> what I had planned to do was to teach myself a bit of Vietnamese and I thought because I was so interested in Q that that could be a good way in to doing it so I kind of thought well if I how about if I translate the first few pages of this and kind of have fun with the language and it would be a fun way 
for me to learn it. So really, that's all that I was trying to do. I mean, I found it, it's a, it's a stupid way to try and learn a language. You, you can't do it in that way. So as a, as a method of kind of learning Vietnamese, I wouldn't recommend it. But what I found was that it, I kind of enjoyed the pages that I had written. I'd enjoyed doing it. And obviously, I had learned a bit of Vietnamese. I had, um, improved my knowledge of the language. I, I used kind of more conventional methods, um, you know, teach yourself things to to try and um, to learn the, the language in, in a more systematic way. But I did have a, a, a good few pages in front of me which I'd enjoyed putting together. Well, I mean, the, the first thing that strikes someone like me who knows no Vietnamese looking at the language is the vowels are all bristling with diacritical marks. And even looking at your translation, the way you introduce each section of the translation, you show that changing those diacritics, which indicate the pitch of the vowel, completely changes the meaning, which makes a page of Vietnamese look almost like a sort of code that you'd have to, you'd have to sort of go through and decipher at the start. Well, I mean, I deliberately kind of put that in um, to show kind of where I came from in terms of my own sort of beginnings with it. And I wanted to try and make it uh, accessible to other people. You know, I think that tonal languages can be quite forbidding. Um, I'd not tried to learn Vietnamese before I went to Vietnam, but I had learned Cantonese and, and Mandarin, not very well, but I, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd made beginnings at that. And, and when you start to learn Cantonese or Mandarin, you find yourself being confronted immediately with the, the different tones that's like lesson one or lessons one to five or whatever is is trying to kind of pick up on these tones and of course because you've got a different writing system with Chinese or Japanese or Korean that's also very forbidding and if we think of the way that Chinese is written when it's written in pinyin we normally write that without the the kind of the diacritics the accents yeah. we, we just put you know Beijing just exactly B-E-I-J-I-N-G, that's it. Whereas properly pinyin would also have accents which and diacritics which indicate where, how the tones should work. But what strikes you with Vietnamese, because they've got a Romanized script, is that, ah, this might be a bit easier for me to learn um, a little bit of Vietnamese. So you pick up the newspaper and you see Bong Da is football. And because you can see photographs of footballers and football matches on the back page, yeah. you think, ah, Bong Da, I've got it, that's football. So because it's a Romanized script, it, it, it allows us Westerners, us Europeans, a, a way into the language as well. But you're absolutely right. The the diacritics are very complex and and it makes the pronunciation of the language... Uh, well, they're helping you with, with the pronunciation, but that pronunciation is challenging to Europeans. So if stage one is encountering this text and being intrigued by it, and then stage two is actually beginning to, to learn some of the language so that you can perhaps uh, start reading it, I guess stage three is then thinking... Hey, I can I could maybe have a go at translating some of this. I mean, that, so you're you're pushing yourself ever ever onward and ever further, ever harder. Mm. Yeah, I think that maybe right. Um, I think there's a few more stages missing, really. Certainly before <laughs> before I long, long dark nights. <laughs> yeah, it's no, to, to be honest with you, that the the strange thing was um, just completely by chance. I came across the Stephen Spender Prize. 
it was in the Sunday Times newspaper, which I didn't get, but my parents-in-law did. And I was sitting around in their living room waiting for them to get ready. And I picked up the paper and, and saw this advert. And, and it said something like, you know, uh, 70 lines of a translation. And I thought, I've got 70. I've got probably 150 lines or something of a translation. So I thought, I wonder if I could just know see how it goes if i enter that so i entered it for the stephen spender prize in about 2007 and um it won one of the prizes so that was the starting point really for me to think of it more seriously as something that wasn't just a kind of a hobby that i was doing myself but that maybe i could do something more with it although i still hadn't thought of doing it as a book what i thought of was that well, part of with the Stephen Spender Prize, I won a Hawthornden Fellowship. I don't know if you've come across them. It's Hawthornden Castle, which is south of Edinburgh. The Heinz Foundation funds kind of residential stays for, for writers. So I got four weeks to to kind of go and work on the text, which is really what allowed me to, to complete it. I'd done quite a lot up to that point but I had small kids and a busy family and it wasn't that easy to find time so to get four weeks in in, in and Castle was really what allowed me to to go right the way through to the to the end and I, I was very pleased with what I'd done but even up to that point I was thinking what I will do with this is just publish certain extracts I'd kind of take out three or four page extracts and I would publish them in things like um poetry review or, or modern poetry in translation or whatever those kind of journals where people are interested in that kind of thing because I still have the problem that it's a 200 year old Vietnamese poem who's going to be interested in that even if I know that they would be interested if they could read it but before you know anything about it you know so many people are going to think oh that sounds a bit worthy or a bit difficult um, so, yeah, I was trying to make people see that it was accessible, but I still thought, I'm not sure if people would really, or a publisher would take on the whole book. That's what I thought. Yours is not the first translation of the poem. There have been quite a few others into English before. So, you know, without disrespecting previous translators, did you feel there was something there that you could get out or you wanted to try to get out? There was a... You know, you wanted to, to produce your version because there was something not quite... I mean, I, I'm not somebody who would disrespect uh, previous translators at all. For me, I've, I've read as many translations as I can get. I mean, I've been listening to some of your other podcasts and I know some people studiously avoid other translations and things, but I certainly didn't. There's one translation in particular, Huynh San Pong's translation from 1983 is the latest version of it, which I think is really, really good. I really enjoy enjoyed it the way that i've been putting it is it's a bit like the blind men with the elephant you know when you take a text as great as this you're kind of approaching it in different ways of all the translations that i've read i would find something interesting in every single one of them that they've taken very different approaches one of them for me for example reads as if we had translated it into English in the 19th century. It might have looked something like this. Another one, you know, Michael Council's translation, which I think is really n nice and kind of rhyming and f skips along. You know, it's easy to read. Or then Huynh San Thong's translation, which is in iambic pentameter, blank verse, very well annotated, much closer to the original than mine. 
it's really, really good. I mean, I really like it. And in some ways, I would like if people kind of like the text because of my version, that it might lead them into Huin San Tong's and ultimately into reading the original itself. But what I tried to do was to tell the story in a lively manner that brought out the poetry of it and that brought out the characters because I felt that that's kind of what wasn't there in the in other versions. Sometimes they're very technically amazing pieces of work in terms of intricate rhyme schemes, um, mirroring the original, or versions like Queen Santong's where it's it's actually quite close to the original text, the original meaning. But I wanted to kind of capture why do all Vietnamese people love this text? If I could make English speakers understand that, get a feel for the text in terms of why does an entire nation love this text? That's really what I wanted to try to do. Well, that gives me a very obvious next question, which is, what what is it then? How, how, how would you um, define what it is that Vietnamese people find in this text? What is it that speaks to them? I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think it's a myth. It's one of those stories that is kind of passed down from generation to generation. And one of the pieces of work which I have written, but I didn't, I had to take it out of the introduction because it was getting too long. But one of the things that I I did was I kind of compare Q with Robin Hood, because I think that they're in many ways quite similar. They're similar age. Robin Hood is a bit older, but they they kind of are based in a historical reality. They then come into folk history, you know, through through rhymes and through stories. They then get a boost by being written down in some way. And I think a written text gives a kind of a turbo charge to a myth in that way. And then, ironically, both of them, obviously unbeknownst to each other, Walter Scott writes Ivanhoe on this side of the Eurasian landmass, mm. and Wayne Zhu writes um, Trien Q on the other side, and both of those written texts completely change the way that 19th, 20th, 21st century people think about those myths. Because our version of, of Robin Hood you know, over here is very much shaped by, by Walter Scott. And I think the same way that the story of Chow originally, she would be in Chinese, the story of Chow becoming Q is completely transformed by what Nguyen Zhu um, does with it. So, yeah, it's a kind of an old myth. Um, it, it's, a, it's a folk story. And I think that for Vietnamese people, it is about struggle. It's about perseverance. Whatever life throws at you, keep going. It doesn't matter what happens to you. Try to stay true to yourself. And yeah, keep persevering, keep on trying. And I think if we look at the 20th century history, particularly of Vietnam, when they, they seem to, you know, they, they went through so many wars in the second half of the um, 20th century with so many kind of invaders and um, so much conflict that I think this story was an inspiration to them to, to keep on going. And I think that in the 21st century, when what has happened is that the Vietnamese have moved around the planet in the kind of very late 20th century and in, in, in this century, Q is also about exile. It's also about songs of homesickness, about being far from your home, far from your family, and that's very much also there. So I think that there's many different aspects of the story which appeal to, to Vietnamese people and which are also universal.
Now, one thing that surprised me coming to this text, not having known anything about it, was that this Vietnamese national epic was based on a Chinese antecedent, on a, a much earlier text. Could you just sketch out how Nguyen Zhu came across it and what you think spoke to him in that earlier story? It's based on a, a historical incident in 1556. I mean, I've actually tried to sketch out in the introduction exactly what happened because I think that there's enough information in some of those old texts to really see what happens. So in 1556 in China, you've got the Ming dynasty in conflict with what they call Wakol, which literally means dwarf pirates or Japanese bandits or something. And the, the conflict between the Ming and, and the, the pirates is something that it was ongoing for several decades. And there's something that happened there, which was between one of the Ming officials and a couple of the pirates, whereby he more or less was kind of promising them amnesty and he betrayed them. You know, they ended up getting their heads cut off where they were expecting to take a job within the Ming army or the Ming navy. And so that's the historical basis of it. And then what happens is that becomes retold in kind of folk stories. And astoundingly, what kind of comes out of it is this woman who doesn't really exist in the in the historical reality, but she becomes the most interesting thing. For, for, for some reason, for the people who retell the story, this virtually totally fictional character she becomes the most interesting one and then she gains this backstory which means that the historical reality becomes a small element in her backstory really and then that a hundred years or so later is written into a novel in chinese jin yun chao juan it's not a very good novel it's kind of pulp fiction is what i've called it it's it's um quite lowbrow in in some ways it's part of a a genre called the talent beauty novels, which were very formulaic, not particularly good, very, very popular at the time, but their time lasted about a century and then they'd been forgotten. And so it was more or less forgotten by the time Nguyen Zhu comes to it. And he, he takes, he's made an ambassador for Vietnam um, and he, he makes a trip to Beijing. During that trip, he comes across a copy of, of this novel and he decides to translate it into Vietnamese. The original, Jin Yun Chao Juan, is, is written in quite lowbrow Chinese prose, not very, very good. And he translates it into beautiful Vietnamese poetry, but also a poetry that's very much rooted in East Asian classical traditions. So it, it really roots the story in the very ancient traditions of East Asia, primarily based on, on Chinese culture, but, but that all of those East Asian cultures, I think, take as their sort of touchstone. In a similar way that ourselves in Europe take ancient Greek and Rome as our classical touchstones, you know. So when people say to me, well, this is all about China, you know, I thought you said this is about Vietnam, why is this all about China? Then I say, well, okay, have a look at Shakespeare's tragedies, Shakespeare's comedies, and tell me how many of them are set in England compared with how many are set in Italy? You know, most of the comedies and most of the tragedies are set in Italy, that's easily the number one country, um, you know, I don't know, Hamlet is set in Denmark. It's actually quite a common thing, I think, for writers to 
use a different tradition to inform their own work, and that's certainly what Wayne Zoo is doing with the story of Q. So he was writing in the early 19th century, adapting or responding to a text from China in the 17th century, which was writing about very fictionalized events from the 16th century. What was it that was speaking to him? And then what was it that, because you say in your introduction, I think it was almost, it was published posthumously, but it was almost immediately a success. Was it the universal in the story? Or was it something particular that you think responded to the situation in Vietnam in the early 19th century? For me, there's another element to it. Um, and the other element is that he, he wants to write about Vietnam. He wants to write about what is happening in Vietnam. But it's extremely dangerous to write about what's happening in Vietnam. If you make it too explicit, you will get your head cut off. And in fact, the Vietnamese emperor did say, even though this guy is dead, if, he, if he'd still been alive, I, I would have had him executed for, for writing this text. So he was trying to do something that makes it seem as though it's, it's about Chinese history, but he very much wants to write about contemporary Vietnam. And he's using the text as a way of writing about his own society. And I think that it was his friend who published it waited until he had died. Uh, he died suddenly and, and quite young, but at a time when the text was all around, or was around in Hanoi at the time, and his friend was working with the text. But I think that when he died, his friend published it because he thought, well, nothing bad can happen to him now. And instantly, um, Vietnamese readers latched onto it as something that was a brilliant work of art, but that did speak directly to them at that time as people within um, Vietnam. I also think that the Chinese novel, kind of bad as it is, and I mean, it does, you know, when you read through the, the kind of critics in China, in Vietnam, and all over the world, they all tend to speak um, quite badly of Jin Yun Chao Juan and say, God, it's really not a very good piece of work. But I think that that actually overlooks some of what is really interesting about Jin Yun Chao Juan. And I think that Nguyen Zhu could see interesting things in it, because I think that that was also writing at a dangerous time. It was writing about, in theory, a bit of history from a 100 years ago about the Ming dynasty, but it was written at the beginning of the Qing dynasty. And the Qing dynasty was very anti-intellectual, very anti-Han Chinese in many ways. The Qing come from outside China and they are, they're kind of, in some ways, a kind of a colonial power. You know, they, they very much feel that they've got these kind of snooty, well-educated Han Chinese subjects who kind of despise us. Uh, who are superior warriors, but they, they kind of look down their noses at us. So I think that the one who writes Jin Yun Chao Juan, who pseudonymously, is trying to write about that kind of quite turbulent period in a way that won't get him executed. And I think that the kind of the Pulp Fiction style of it allows it to fly under the radar of the Qing, because the Qing, uh, they're quite brutal about punishing um, poets and and novelists for for saying anything which is even slightly critical of the Qing. And yet this, which 
which really is um, critical of an imperial power. On the one hand, it seems to be critical of the Ming, but if you apply it to the contemporary period, it would be different. And on the other hand, it looks like Pulp Fiction. It doesn't look as though it's it's kind of a, a serious piece of work. So I think that that ensures its survival. And I think that some of that is what Nguyen Zhu sees when he picks the text up. He thinks, I think he can see the potential in it that actually it's much more interesting than other readers maybe had realised before then. One of the things that I say in the introduction is that I think he's its most extraordinary reader, and I do think that that's, that's the case. He's a brilliant reader. And translators, of course, are readers, aren't they, par, par excellence, because you've got, to, you've got to read every word, you've got to respond in some way, whether it's by omitting or whatever. And I wanted to ask you, you, you say, your version, you say reworked, by Timothy Allen rather than translated by. So what did you sort of mean to suggest by that and um, in terms of liberties or latitudes? I think, I mean, kind of two things really. One that I, I, I kind of feel probably my Vietnamese isn't good enough for it to be a, a real translation. So to some extent I'm trying to flag up that, um, you know, if you really want... A kind of a definitive version of Nguyen Zhu, then somebody like Huyen San Pong's version would be much um, better than mine. There are certain words, there are certain expressions that I've really kind of wrangled with in a lot of detail, but to some extent I feel that maybe it would be too strong for me to call it a translation. But vice versa, I think it it's also more than a translation, because what I've tried to do is to kind of create something new a kind of i was really interested in the the recent one that you had it was uh, mark polizzotti wasn't it who was talking about um a translation can be a work of art in its own right i'm not sure that i'm making that claim for myself but i certainly think that the original in wayne zoos is a brilliant work of art which is also a translation of a chinese text so i f- felt, yeah, in using the term reworking, I am trying to create something new. My my starting point, even with languages that I speak much better than I speak Vietnamese, because I've done other translations, I always work on that basis. That what I'm creating is something new. I want it to appeal to the reader. I want the reader to enjoy my text, you know, in and of itself. And yes, I'm kind of trying to point the way to a, a previous text which if you can speak the other language you can access that one as well but yeah I'm trying to create something that will work on its own terms so those are the two things that I mean about reworking one I don't want to be so grand as to call myself a translator and the other I want to be so grand as to say I hope you'll enjoy this for its own sake it's right. yeah so can you explain to him how you worked on a section of the poem, how you actually proceeded, not across the whole canvas, but maybe sort of zooming in on what your method was for tackling, you know, because you talk, I think you talk about the poem being composed in a way out of mini poems, and you can sort of see definite sort of tonally coherent sections. How do you actually work on that day to day? Yeah, I think it's quite, that's quite a complex question, really. For one thing, the original is written in Luke Bat verse, which is a very tightly restricted 
kind of verse. It's it's used for Vietnamese ballads, so it's it's very much a kind of a, a language of the the people. But also, he's in a way that sort of Shakespeare uses blank verse to kind of take demotic language and create something extraordinarily poetic. And Wayne Zhu succeeds in doing that, I think, in Luke Bat in Vietnamese. I haven't done that. I mean, I, I have tried to vary the the tones and vary the structures and systems that I, that I used according to what seemed to me could work well for a particular scene or a particular bit of it. Sometimes I've just had fun with things like the rhyme and that. I've hidden a limerick in there. I always say this to people that I that I give the text to. See if you can find the limerick because there is a little bit where I put a limerick in there. But I mean, so yeah, I, I found that using varied kinds of of structures that we've got access to in in sort of modern English poetry allowed me to maybe imitate some of the different forms that Nguyen Zhu used. So that's one thing that I would say there. The other thing, I kind of really went into a lot of detail with certain words. I spent a lot of time, because I was trying to learn Vietnamese, that was that was my original point. So I really wanted to look in a lot of detail at certain words. And for example, there's a bit where, um, where the character of Tuk goes back to his first wife so he kind of goes back home he's he's been a successful trading merchant and he goes back home and there's a word which basically means fish or a kind of fish and i was trying to think how to to translate that because i think the way that i've said is that he he goes back to a diet of milk fish and watercress is what i've said and i really spent a lot of time looking at that because i i looked at the particular word um in terms of what it means and the the so the word for fish or that particular kind of fish can be translated as trout it can also be translated as australia could you believe so um, so you know you you're kind of landed with that so but trout was one word which i found i did go to other translations to say well how do have they wrangled with it and they sometimes used the word fish and sometimes used the word uh, I think trout was one of the common ones. And I didn't really feel like either of those quite did the job for me in terms of what it was. And then I came across milkfish, which I think is... I didn't even know about it, really, but I think the word milk, the word fish, both seem such kind of earthy English words that give that sense of simplicity and homeliness. And then I found that a milkfish is actually... Uh, it's a particularly bony fish, which... Working class people in Vietnam have have um, traditionally eaten. So when I came across that word and found out what it was, I thought, yeah, that's that's the word that I want for that couplet. So it's yeah a little bit of a treacherous translation. I've kind of put something there that maybe wasn't quite there in the original, but at the same time, that feeling of homeliness is certainly what in Wayne Zhu was looking for. So that's the reason why I chose that word. As I was reading the translation, I was thinking dealing with the natural world must have been a real challenge because there are so many plants and flowers and and birds. And as you were saying, you know, sometimes you can go to a straight equivalence, you know, trout, but maybe it's not doing much poetic work or it's maybe sending the reader down a, the wrong alley. So you may be coming up with words which are not as accurate in inverted commas, but actually convey some sense of the poetry. 
I think so. I mean, I, I quite often I will try to use simple words. You know, I often think I don't want to make it unnecessarily complicated. So often I will just simply use a word like tree or bird or or whatever. Um, but then there are times, there's, there's certain expressions like swifts and orioles where you're continually coming back to particular birds which are being used in a very particular way. And I kind of wanted to give a sense of that which... I trusted the reader's intelligence to kind of pick up from context what a lot of things would be. I didn't want to have any footnotes. That was my original thought. I know I've got plenty of footnotes there now, but my original thought was to try to create a version that you could simply read. And I think that you can. You know, I don't think you need the footnotes that I've put there. I, I really wanted to create a text that you could just pick up and read it and you could get from context an awful lot of of what is there. I only really referred to the footnotes because I was enjoying them. I don't th- I think your translation reads very well and doesn't need them, but I love the one about Conrad Lorenz and how you had drawn inspiration from him, a 20th century animal behaviorist, to give voice to the cranes, the, b- the birds in in the poem. I thought that was oh, that was lovely. So you obviously you're obviously drawing inspiration from a variety of places. That seemed to me a subtle but unmistakable assertion of your rights as a translator to draw from something that came, you know, a century or more after in a completely different context. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, that Conrad Lorenz thing is something which I'd, I'd read. I mean, I, I visited uh, Martin Mayer in in Northwest England, and I picked up a copy of his book there and over my house now I live in in Liverpool on the outskirts of Liverpool and we often get grey lag geese coming over our house we're on a flight path so you hear them kind of honking away and I'd picked up the Conrad Lorenz book and he'd said this is what they're honking this is what they're saying it keeps them in that formation to say here I am where are you and that had always like stayed with me and then when I was looking at this and and this is a cue singing a a song about homesickness and it is singing about a a Chinese woman who gets taken to Mongolia and she writes that kind of song of exile which in the original it says you know her song reminds you of the the song of migrating geese and then I thought of Conrad Lorenz and I thought well isn't it perfect that that is literally what they're saying is here I am, where are you? Which is what we exiled lovers often want to say, isn't it? To When we're on a different continent or a different country, we want to say it to our husband or our wife or, or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it actually, it, it, there's a connection between us and, and migrating birds, really, even in the language that we're using that seemed to me kind of quite poetic and I cheekily put it in there to the to the footnote to make that connection. I was talking to Timothy Allen about his translation, or his reworking, of the Song of Q, which was recently published by Penguin Classics. More information about it on the Penguin Classics website. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 50 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.